you have your Bibles, you may turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Now I have a surprise for you guys. But before I reveal the surprise, we're going we're gonna to pray. I believe everything should begin, endure, and end in prayer. And I am not about to stand up here and speak on any day without going to the Lord first, but especially on Resurrection Sunday. And I always tell you that you should pray over the people that you listen to preach. So if you haven't prayed up for me yet, here's your opportunity to fix that and pray for me now. And trust me, I know me, you need to pray. (laughs) My wife said, Amen. (laughs) I will say this. If you knew how much stuff I held back, you would be proud of me too. Uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding, kind of. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so humbled to be able to present your gospel, your word. Lord, sometimes I think that even myself and many others, we forget what we're doing. That the God of the universe has spoken forth his word. And we have the opportunity to speak on that word, to comment on it, and to speak it forth to people. This is the very word of God, and we have the opportunity to handle it. That is not a small thing. Lord, I just pray right now that you would empower me and that you would speak through me and that your word would go forth gloriously and accomplish that purpose that you would send it forth to accomplish this morning. It says that it will not return void. So Lord, I'm praying that you accomplish the purpose that you seek to accomplish this morning. And I'm praying that every single person is changed by the power of God, myself included. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's your surprise. I am going to preach a perfect Easter message. Are you ready for it? Jesus is risen. Amen. All right, now that we got that out of the way, I'm going to preach what the Holy Ghost wants to preach this morning. (laughs) I'm sorry, it was a joke. I couldn't help myself. All right, all right. Luke chapter 15, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I apologize, this isn't going to be a typical Easter message. I don't really do that. I just ask the Holy Ghost what to preach, and whatever He says, that's what we go with, whether it matches the holiday or not. So Luke chapter 15, verse 1. It says this, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This is the man that receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father. He said, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. Amen. You know, Charles Dickens, the great novelist, he was asked one time in an interview, he said, What story has the most pathos? the most feeling what story out of every book that you've read everything that you've written what story in your estimation has the most feeling and he didn't take 10 seconds to answer he just immediately responded and he said without a shadow of a doubt it's the prodigal son no story in any form of literature ever even comes close to the amount of emotion and feeling that's found in the prodigal son this is the crescendo of this chapter it's the pinnacle, the climax. But you can't start there. If you start with just the story of the prodigal son, you miss the whole point. So we're going to talk about the prodigal son because that's what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to talk about. But we have to get there. You have to understand the context of what's going on. Or the prodigal son is a great little story, but it doesn't make any sense because it's only one third of the parable. Jesus says he, it says he told them a parable, single, one. There's three sections to the same story. And the prodigal son is only one section of that story. In the very first verse of Luke chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to Jesus to hear him. The past couple of weeks, every time that I've been praying and asking God what to preach, when I come to the passage, tears just begin to roll down in my cheek because I begin to feel a little bit of what God's heart is in the passage. 
And when I read the first verse of Luke chapter 15 this week, I just began to cry. That's not me trying to say, oh, you need to cry. Like I just began to cry because I read it in a different way than I had ever before. See, the tax collectors were sinners. They had betrayed their people to the Romans and they were extorting their own people for the sake of Romans and for the sake of profit. But guess what? They were the pretty sinners. They had the nice clothes. They had the nice shoes. They had the nice houses. I mean, look at any of the stories, particularly Zacchaeus and the feast that he's able to throw. They have the wealth and the money. They're still sinners, but they don't look bad. They don't smell bad. And then you have the other category. So you have the pretty sinners, and then you have the other category, and it says sinners. And we know who this is. This are, these are those that are busted and disgusted, that are broken and down and out, that are destitute, and they know that they're sinners. These are the people that may not even have a home. The people that you can look from a mile away and say, yeah, they're a sinner. But you have ugly sinners and you have pretty sinners. And guess what? They're all coming to Jesus. And I love the heart of Jesus because he doesn't push them away. See, in church, one of our biggest faults is we like the pretty sinners to come. We like the pretty sinners to come, the people that have all the money. Nobody's going to complain if a you know, wolf of Wall Street walks into their church and sits on the front row to hear the gospel. But we start thinking when somebody comes in and they're inappropriately dressed and they stink and they, they look like they haven't had any personal hygiene in weeks and we know that they may, not, may or may not have a place to live and we begin to judge them based on their socioeconomic status because they're not a pretty sinner. But Jesus doesn't push away the ugly sinners and Jesus doesn't push away the pretty sinners. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. He says, come to me all you that are thirsty and drink freely from the well. The Bible says this, it says, you know, that everyone that comes to Jesus, he will in no wise cast out. In no way will he cast them out or push them off. They come to Jesus. And why are they coming to Jesus? Because they want to hear what he has to say. They've come to a revelation and they've come from two different paths. The ugly sinners, they don't have anything. They don't have the home or the food or the clothes or the car or any of that stuff. And yes, I said car. I'm just thinking, I'm spiritualizing the text here. And putting it in our context. They don't have anything. There's a million needs that they have. They need food. They need a place to live. They need a job. They need you know, something um, to wear. They have all of these needs. But yet where are they at? They're at the feet of Jesus because they realize that there's one need that's more pressing than any other need that they have. And that's the words that Jesus is communicating because He has the words of life. Peter says, where else shall we go? You alone hold the words of life. And the pretty sinners, they have everything. But guess what? They don't have satisfaction in any of it. They don't have satisfaction in any of it. They have the money. I'll never forget the time, and I always go back to Tom Brady. And when he was asked, he had won, what, four Super Bowls at that point in time. He was extremely successful, had the supermodel wife, the nice house, mansion, the nice cars, all that stuff. And he just said, it's, is this all there is? Is this all there is? There was no satisfaction in any of it. And you can ask anybody, especially people with wealth 
and with all the, the money and the house and the job and everything and their life looks picture perfect, sometimes they're the most miserable people you'll ever find because they've realized that there's nothing left for them to pursue and they still don't have satisfaction or happiness. And so they're coming to Jesus because they realize that he has to have the answer. No one else does and nothing else does, but he has to have the answer. And guess what the religious are doing? The church, guess what they're doing? They're complaining. Why is it that the people that claim Christianity and that attend our churches on Sunday mornings and Wednesday night are sometimes most, some of the most miserable and complainingest people I've ever met in my life? I'm going to tell you this. I've met a lot of people and I have a past. I've been in bars. I've been in all kinds of clubs. And I'm going to use careful language because there's kids in this service. But I've been in a lot of destitute places. And I'm going to tell you, I can think on my hands some of the meanest people I've ever met. And the top five meanest people that I've ever met all attend church regularly. They all attend church regularly. Some of them attend church more often than anybody in this room. And they're the meanest, nastiest people that I've ever met in my entire life. I went to a restaurant, Faith and I were youth leaders of a group one time, and in Dayton, Tennessee, not far from here, and we went to a restaurant, and we and, and the waitress was being rude. And you guys, some of you have been out to eat with me, some of you haven't had the pleasure yet, I don't let that stand. And I'm not mean about it, but I will annoy you with kindness until you get out of your funk. And that's what I did to this waitress. And finally, I just asked her, I said, are you having a good day? And she said to me, she said, no, I hate working on Sundays. And so this, my ears perked up. Really? Why? I should think Sundays would be a great day to work. You've got one big boom and then the day's over. She said, no. She said, because the people, when they get out of church, are the rudest and meanest people that I have to deal with all week long, and they hardly ever tip anything. And I'm sitting there, and I am, I am thunderstruck. And I'm like, no, we're going to change your perception of Christians right now. Listen, evangelism, sharing the gospel, 90% of it is just changing people's opinions of Christians. So we tipped extremely well. And we loved on her until she was sick of it. <laughs> but I thought to myself, the people that are supposed to be known for kindness, gentleness, love, patience, peace, and generosity were known in the community for the exact opposite. And they had created a stumbling block for a non-Christian just by going out to eat. You got the people that are identifying as the religious elite of the day. We know God. We're friends with God. We're the sons of God. God is our father. We're the children of Israel. And guess what? They are over here complaining because people are trying to come to God himself. They're grumbling. They're grumbling because Jesus doesn't fit in their mold of what they want Jesus to look like. Jesus is dining with tax collectors and sinners. He's dining with pretty sinners and ugly sinners. Why isn't he just having a meal with us that are super religious? Sometimes Jesus doesn't fit our mold. And so what we try to do is we try to like take this Bible and like wad it up and cram it into the mold. This is a rectangle Bible. It doesn't go in a circle hole. 
(laughs) But we try to make it fit. We try to force it to fit what we want it to be. And so Jesus tells them a parable. One parable. And you might ask yourself, you know, who he's telling the parable to? What's the antecedent of them? And most people would just say, following the grammatical flow of the passage, it has to be the scribes and the Pharisees. But I want to tell you that Jesus isn't just telling a parable to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's also telling a parable to the pretty sinners and the ugly sinners. And he starts out this way. He starts out with the shepherd leaving the 99 and going after the one. And let me tell you something. My wife's going to laugh at me, and I don't care. Let me tell you something. The focus is not on the leaving the 99. The focus is on the going after the one. The focus is on the fact that the one is important enough in the mind of the shepherd that he went after them. He went after the one. He's not the one that pushed, or he's not the reason that the one went astray. He didn't push the one out from the 99. The one went of its own accord and volition and chased off after other things and got itself lost. And he went and left the 99 set his glory to the side and went after the one. Went after the one. And I love it when he finds it, it says that he picks it up and puts it on his shoulders and carries it back. You know, Jesus says, he says, when I be lifted up or if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. And Jose tells us, he says, on the third day, we were raised. You know what I think that this is alluding to? I think that the shepherd is obviously an allusion to Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. When he goes and he gets that sheep, is a picture of when he goes and is getting to go down, ready to go down the Via Della Rosa, they put something on his shoulder, don't they? They put the top bean of that cross on his shoulders and make him carry it. And in allegorical fashion, that's a representation of us. Isaiah in his prophecy, he says he will have the government on his shoulder. It's a prophecy and an allegorical representation of the fact that Jesus Christ picked us up. In that cross, we were all symbolized as being represented by the act of the cross. He picked us up and he carried us to Golgotha where we could die so that we could be buried So that then on the third day, Hosea's prophecy would be fulfilled and we could be raised. We are crucified with Christ. We are dead with Christ. We are buried with Christ. We are quickened with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ and we are reigning with Christ. That's the New Testament double portion. And all of that is fulfilled and represented right here in this first third of the parable of the prodigal son. He picks up the sheep and he puts it on his shoulders and he takes it back home. And guess what he does? He calls his friends and he says, They celebrated. And this is Jesus looking right in the religious elect of the day, the church, and saying, hey, if you were really friends with the shepherd, you'd be celebrating when the ugly sinners and the pretty sinners come to me. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on to the second third of the parable. In the second third of the parable, you have a woman who lost a coin. Notice the the shepherd had a hundred sheep. He lost one percent and went after the one percent. The woman had ten coins. She lost ten percent and went after. You know what I find so interesting about this? You can say the woman represents whatever you want. The woman probably 
represents the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. But the church is the church because it's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church is identified with those that have been called out by the Spirit of God to represent a prophetic community of people. So the second third of the the parable actually represents the Holy Spirit. You can say it represents the Holy Spirit moving in and through the church, but it represents the Holy Spirit. And guess what? The woman's coin is a silver drachma. And a drachma was the going rate of one day's labor. And on the sixth day, God created man in his own image and the product of his one day of labor was mankind. And he thought it fitting enough to send everything after searching for the one day's labor that had lost itself. And so the church's responsibility empowered by the Spirit is to hold the light of the gospel and to search everywhere to find that which is lost. And guess what? When the church finds that which is lost, what's it do? It calls its friends and its neighbors and has a party and celebrates. And every time he says this, at the end of this story, at the end of the first part of the parable, I know, I know that I know that I know that he was looking right in those scribes and Pharisees' eyes and saying, and the friends of the woman celebrated. And the friends of the shepherd celebrated. They celebrated. If you were really a friend of the shepherd, you'd be celebrating. If you were really a friend of the church, you'd be celebrating. If you were filled with the Holy Spirit, you'd be celebrating when somebody came, whether they're a pretty sinner, an ugly sinner or not. But then you get to the crescendo, the the main point of the whole ordeal, the prodigal son. And you notice Jesus doesn't say there was a certain man who had three sons. He doesn't say that. Because at the beginning of the chapter, it looks like there's three categories of people, doesn't it? You look like you have the tax collectors or the pretty sinners, and then you have the ugly sinners, and then you have the scribes and the Pharisees. But he doesn't say there was three categories of people. He says there was two. Because what Jesus is actually communicating here is that no matter how pretty the scribes and the Pharisees think they are, no matter how religious they think that they are, they're actually nothing more than just another form of pretty sinner. That's why later he says, you're nothing but whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside and inwardly filled with dead men's bones. There's only two categories of people. The pretty sinner and the ugly sinner. But if you followed the train of thought, Jesus even reduced it down further and said, no, there's really only just one category of people, and that's sinners. There was only one sheep that went missing, not two or three. There was only one coin that got lost, not two or three. But he's keeping it in two categories because he wants to teach the scribes and the Pharisees something. This isn't for just for the sinners. This isn't just for the prodigals. And we share this story all the time and focus on the prodigal son, the younger son that was lost and that came back and all that beautiful stuff. But the story is every bit just as much for the older brother, the pretty sinner, who thinks that they haven't done anything wrong. So let's focus on the older brother first. Let's flip the script. We'll come back to the ugly sinner, but let's focus on the pretty sinner first. Listen, I know that that's crass terminology, pretty sinner and ugly sinner, but that's just the way that we think. I'm just being honest. I'm not going to sit up here and use some kind of rhetoric or speech that doesn't make sense. I'm using market language. That means I'm using language that we understand that sticks with you. Because I could say, I could say something like the politically or socially economically acceptable sinner and the poor, unconventional sinner. But that, that doesn't communicate 
Well, it communicates is saying, hey, we got people that we think are pretty. They dress nice. They look nice. And we got people that we think are not as pretty. Ugly. And it's sad that we think that way, but that's because we're a part of one of the two groups. The older brother. At the end of this story, the prodigal son comes home and the older brother asks, he says, what is that sound? What is that sound? He doesn't even recognize the sound of a celebration. So many Christians have got every bit of joy stolen from them. They walk around and they say that they have joy. They say that they have peace. But oftentimes, we have like a stapler, like a spiritual stapler. And here we are, and we think, okay, I need to have peace. The Bible says Christians are supposed to have peace. So I'm going to staple this metaphorical piece of paper to myself saying I've got peace when we don't. It's like taking an apple tree that's rotten or of poor health and it's not producing quality fruit. And it's like going to the grocery store and buying a bag of apples and going out tying them to the tree. That's what we do. The Bible says a Christian is supposed to have joy. I'm miserable, but I gotta, the Bible says, so I'm going to staple joy. It says I'm supposed to have victory. I'm going to staple it on. I'm not going to deal with the root cause or the root issue. I'm just going to staple it on. Because if they see that I, I look happy, you know how many times I have walked in to different places of people that I know go to church and walked into somewhere they happen to be working at or a store they happen to be shopping at, and I am absolutely dumbfounded by how they behave when they don't think another Christian's watching them. I'm serious. Dumbfounded. Because that's not who they are on Sunday. That's not who they are on Easter. Come on, they look pretty on Easter. They talk real nice on Easter. They're stapled on. I need peace. I need joy. I need contentment. I need gentleness. I need spiritual victory. I'm supposed to have the Holy Ghost, so let me here just move my mouth around in a funny way and pretend that I got that too. He doesn't even recognize what a celebration is. doesn't even recognize what joy is. What does this mean? And they tell him, and he gets mad. And you know what? He's a liar. And he attacks the father. He says, you, I've been with you. I've been perfectly obedient. We know that's a lie. And you've never given me so much as a kid to celebrate with my friends. And that's a lie because the father separated the inheritance between them both. So he's just lying and attacking the father. You know why? Because he was in proximity to the father, but he was no closer in relationship to the father than the one that went miles away. And in our churches, a lot of times we have people that are in a close proximity to where they think God is, but they, have, they are no more in relationship with Him than someone that's in the bar right now. Someone that's in... Um, man, it's hard to preach with kids here. <laughs> someone that's in a very unfavorable location. Someone that's in a drug house right now. 
are about the same distance from God as somebody that's in a church. The only difference is, is one of them knows it and the other one's lying to themselves and everybody around them. Yikes. That's right, buddy. Yikes. <laughs> and what does the father do? father says, you've always been close. Everything I have, I've given to you. It's always been there available. And it's almost like God is saying, it's not my problem that you didn't take advantage of it. It's not my problem that you didn't accept the invitation offered. It's not my problem that you've been right here this whole time and you have no more understood the invitation that I've offered you than someone that's never heard it before. But it's fitting that we celebrate when someone does. And this is the, the punch in the face to the scribes and the Pharisees that are sitting there because there is no way that they heard this and they did not pick up on the fact that he said, hey, if you're a friend of the shepherd, which David, even if they aren't understanding the messianic language, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. So they understood and they identified God as being a shepherd. And they understood spiritual Israel to being the mother of them all. That's Old Testament language. New Testament language in the, well, following New Testament language, Cyprian, one of the early church fathers, he said, he that does not have the church as his mother does not have God as his father. So he's saying, if you were really a friend of the shepherd, you'd rejoice when a sheep came home. If you were really a friend of the spiritual mother, Israel, the church, the Holy Spirit, if you were really a friend, you'd rejoice when that coin was found. And then he goes even further and he says, you're acting like a son of God, claiming to be a son of God, but you've only just been in proximity and you don't understand him at all. You don't celebrate what he celebrates. You don't rejoice over what he rejoices over. You don't believe what he says and you don't even recognize him when he's in the flesh right in front of you. See, this the reason that I love this parable so much is because you have all three aspects of the triune Godhead right here working harmoniously in our redemption portrayed allegorically right here for you. And he's telling those scribes and the Pharisees, you're not a friend of the shepherd. You're not a friend of the church and you're not acting like a son of God should act. But that's convincing them that they're one of the two categories that they're a pretty sinner. They're no different. The prodigal, the ugly sinner, the one that realizes that they're ugly because really and truthfully, everything boils down to us being sinners. And all sin is ugly, no matter how pretty we try to make it. That's why there's really only one category, and it's ugly sin. Listen, we can make some things look pretty. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. And the book of Proverbs is chocked full of sin and temptation, putting on a pretty face. But it's a road that leads straight to hell. All sin is ugly. And when you follow the story of the prodigal son and what happens to him, he goes to his father, says, basically, I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me your will. And then he goes and he squanders it. 
And he gets so destitute because circumstances are rising. A famine comes after he'd squandered his inheritance. And he finds himself in a pig pen looking at the filth that pigs are eating and lusting after it. In a pig pen, looking at half-eaten corn on the cob, covered in mud, and desiring it. Something that is so far below his station. So far beneath him, and yet he's lusting after it. And every single one of you, and myself included, do the exact same thing. We live our life looking at material things in this world and we desire it and we lust after it and it is so far beneath who we are. It's so far beneath who we are. If we had a fraction of an idea of who we are in Christ Jesus and what's available to us, the things that catch our attention, the things that pull on our heartstrings would not even begin to phase us. But the truth is, is we really have no idea. A lot of us out there claim to be spiritual fathers and mentors. And there are some really, really amazing men and women of God. I don't want to take away from that. I don't. But I have this, this thought, this idea. And it might make a lot of people mad. So if I make you mad, forgive me. You have to, the Bible says. <laughs> I have this theory and my theory is this, that there might be some, there's four stages of spiritual maturity. There's infants, there's little children, there's young men, and then there's fathers or mothers. And you know, I have this theory that not a single person alive today is above a little child. I don't think that there is anybody that's at the level of spiritual father today or mother. I just think that we have lowered the standard of what Christianity is so far that when someone is a little child or even maybe even a young man or a young woman spiritually in the faith, that we automatically conclude that there's a father because we don't have any idea of what a spiritual father is. Where is the Paul's at? Where is somebody that's operating on that level? And I just think that we just have no idea. So what we start doing is we start lusting after and desiring after things that are so far below our station because we have no idea what's actually available to us. A.W. Tozer once said, I am not scared of the things that I've done in this life. It's the things that I haven't done that scare me. I am afraid that one day I'm going to step over, take one step from this life into glory, and as soon as I cross that threshold, I'm going to look and realize that I've lived my entire life as a spiritual beggar. And I think that's what's going to happen to every single one of us unless something changes. I admit that I've got a long way to go. And I hope that one day I get there. Anyway, that wasn't part of the message, so I'm sorry. Let's back up. <laughs> He's desiring something below his station because he doesn't have an inkling of who he is. But one day he comes to himself. And you know, if you look at this whole thing, all three of these sections as being part of the same parable, you see the shepherd goes after the sheep. The woman goes after the coin. And so one day, a couple of years ago, I asked myself, I said, God, it doesn't make sense. Why does the shepherd go after the sheep, the woman go after the coin, but the father doesn't go after the son? And he says, yeah, he does. 
I'm like, wait a second. No, no he wa- the son's on his way back and then he runs to meet him, but the son has to initiate that. Where's that prevenient ga- grace of God? Where's that pre-regenerate sanctification work that we're talking about? Where's that at? And you know what? He says, it's there. He says, you think the son came to himself on his own? What happens? Read it. What happens? The son is in a situation where he's in servitude to a harsh master. He is working his hind end off for the system of the world, for people in that country, and he is not able to eat. He has no satisfaction. The world isn't giving him anything, and so he's desiring something that's below his station. He's not getting any fulfillment, not any sustenance, nothing. And guess what happens? I I, I just imagine that he's sitting there, and all of a sudden he thinks about, This story of his father saying, you know what, today we're going to kill our fattened calf and we're just going to reward all the servants for how good they have been to our family. Now I'm reading that into the text. I'm just imagining. Something happened. He thought about something. He was reminded about the goodness of God. He was reminded about the goodness of the Father. He was reminded about the mercy and the favor of the Father. And he looked at his situation and the masters that he was serving, and he looked at the master which the Father is and how he leads and how he rules over those that are underneath him, and he said, I want that. And that was what got him up out of the mud and caused him to go back. And guess what? Then, he didn't have to make it all the way back. He didn't have to come all the way home. He couldn't have got there on his own anyway. He didn't have to make it all the way to perfection for God to accept him. No, all he had to do was just act on the extended invitation that was present to him, and God ran and met him. And he started off and said, I'm not fit to be your son. And guess what? God doesn't even let him finish his rehearsed story. That's why I hate it when when I lead somebody to the Lord and I pray with them. I tell them one thing they have to say. One thing they have to do. The Bible says that if you believe on Him in your heart, on Jesus Christ in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that He is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And it says everyone that calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I just say you just have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead and ask Him to save you, to redeem you, to cleanse you. And I said that's your responsibility. After that, it needs to flow out from your heart and you need to speak to God what's on your heart. I hate the rehearsed prayers where you go through 10 minutes of just repeat after me. It's like, no, because that's the prodigal son's rehearsed statement. And God doesn't accept that. He interrupts that in the middle and says, no, this is what's going to happen. And then he, guess what? He puts the best robe on him, which is symbolizing everybody that's in Christ Jesus, puts on Christ Jesus. He puts a ring on him to signify that he's part of the family. He's royalty. He puts shoes on his feet so that he can walk in the light of the gospel. And then they have the sacrifice available, which is a picture of what Christ accomplished. And they all get to partake in it and they get to rejoice together. And it's a big celebration. Basically, what Jesus is communicating to the scribes and the Pharisees, the pretty sinners and the ugly sinners, and really just sinners in general, is that no matter what you do, there is only one way back. And it's by realizing that God is good. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And when you take that initiative and you make that change, then God accepts you and welcomes you home. And everyone that is a true friend of God, the shepherd or the church rejoices because of the decision that's been made. Let me tell you something that wrecked my heart, church. Let me tell you something that wrecked my heart. I'm almost done. This is my first closing. Let's see if I can land it on the first try. I'm almost done. Don't panic yet. When 
I read Luke 15, verse 7. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. It literally almost destroyed me a couple weeks ago. And I said, I don't know how, God, but I know that that is going to be a part of Easter. I just feel it. I know. And it says this. It's right there. We'll read King James language. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Do me a favor. Do me a favor. Go down to verse 10. Likewise, I say to you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Do me another favor. Do me another favor. Go down to verse 32. It was meet or it was fitting that we should make merry or be happy and have a party and be glad for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let me ask you something, church. How many of you claim the name of Jesus Christ and are saved? How many? Raise your hand. You know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Raise your hand. Raise them up high. As high as you can. All right. Did you realize... And have you thought about this? Because I've heard this verse preached a hundred different times about when somebody gives their life to the Lord, all of heaven rejoices. But have you thought about the fact that there was a moment in time in your life where every single angel in heaven and every single friend of God rejoiced because you came home? Think about that in your perspective. That you were the catalyst that caused a heaven-wide party. Just let that sink in for a minute. You caused heaven to shake with joy. An unfathomable, uncountable number of angels celebrated and shouted and sang because you said, Lord, I'm coming home. Is that not good? That's worthy of celebration. But there's some in here. Because see, I tricked you. I had you lift your hands if you were saved instead of waiting and having you lift your hands if you weren't. There's some of you that haven't had that experience. There's people sitting in this room right now that have never caused a heaven-wide party. I want to tell you guys something. Yesterday, we have a... um, like a closet pantry area and it's this big room and it doubles as both just because I have a lot of suits and a lot of shoes. My wife has barely any, but I, (laughs) (laughs) but in this room we have a freezer where we store extra meat and food and I sat on the floor and leaned up against the freezer because I often do when I'm thinking. I don't know why. That's just, I'm weird, but I was sitting there thinking and I was just kind of meditating and talking to God and God began to show me something. I don't know who it is, but God began to show me something. Somebody in this church right now, and I I don't do this often. If you've come here before, you realize this isn't a frequent equation, but somebody in in this church sitting here right now, you literally cry every single day. You cry every single day. You feel pain and agony every single day. And you struggle with depression. And you struggle with what the meaning and the purpose of life is and why you're still here. I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. 
I'm not saying that you don't know Jesus. I'm just saying that something, the enemy has gotten a hold on you and on your mind, and you struggle every single day with what's the point of it all. And you find yourself crying and begging God to know what or why or how every single day. So here's what I want to do. I want to give an altar call. You guys can play some fancy music. I want to give an altar call. And I want to invite everyone up. If you don't know Jesus, let's make a threefold altar call. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you've never caused a heaven-wide party, I want you to come up and I want, you, I want to rectify that situation. So that's first. Second, if you have been in the church and you claim to know Jesus, but you don't have joy over hearing what God's doing in other people's life and your joy and your happiness and your generosity has somehow been stolen from you, I want to pray over you. And thirdly, if you're that person that God showed me and you cry every single day and you struggle with depression and you don't even know what the point of it all is, I beg you, don't go out like that. That's dangerous. Don't do that. Don't give in to the enemy. Because your tears, everyone you've cried, are being stored in a vial in heaven. And God counts every single one of them. And He doesn't want that to have the last word in your life. So I want all three. And you know why I'm doing all three? Because I don't want you to have to give away the fact that that's you. If that's you, I'll pray over you and I'll love you and no one will know but me and you.